Welcome to the Hogan Lovells podcast series. I'm Jen Northam. This is part one of a two-part series on joint ventures. Today, we're going to be looking at the business climate for JVs. We're going to discuss what a successful joint venture looks like and some common mistakes that many companies make along the way. And then in part two, we'll discuss what happens if it all goes wrong. We'll get some advice on how to terminate a JV and what best practice might look like. Let's first start with the basics. A joint venture, in its most simple terms, is a commercial arrangement created by two or more parties. The combined entity shares ownership as well as the risks and returns. It can be an effective way for companies to enter new markets, create scale and efficiencies, and to access new skills and resources. But that's if everything's running smoothly. What if it goes wrong? And how can you spot the signs that things might not be working? Those are the questions I'll be asking today's guests. I'm joined by John Talata, Global Co-Leader for the Corporate and Securities Litigation Group at Hogan Lovells. John's also the Northern Virginia Office Practice Manager for Litigation, Arbitration and Employment, and has over two decades of experience in corporate governance, securities, cybersecurity, consumer protection, technology, and other business issues. Also joining us is Olaf Gartner. Olaf is also co-leader for Hogan Lovell's Corporate and Securities Litigation Group. His focus lies on advising national and international companies and their board members with regard to corporate litigation and all aspects of board members' liability and DNO liability. Now, John, I'd love to start with you. So what's the current climate like for joint ventures right now, and what are most companies hoping to achieve? I think uh, globally we're continuing to see companies using joint ventures as an alternative to other types of business combinations, like your traditional M&A transactions. And and this is true in the United States and in Europe, Asia, and other parts of the world as well. Um, For example, uh, in the U.S., we see traditional brick-and-mortar businesses entering into joint ventures with technology companies uh, more frequently now to try to help them adapt to online, mobile, and global business demands. Um, In China, joint ventures have been uh, very popular for some time because of restrictions on foreign investments to that country. So a joint venture may be the only option to enter the China market for companies located in other parts of the world. Um, Another example would be large funds and investors from from some regions like, like Australia They're using joint ventures to invest in companies in other parts of the world, like in Europe and in North America, uh, to control ownership while relying on joint venture partners to handle the operations. And so we're seeing this across the globe, and um, the trends continue pretty much as as we have been seeing, uh, but but the technology piece is, is a big one. Can we talk about that technology piece? And does the appetite for joint ventures vary depending on what sector you're in? It does. We, we do see joint ventures more often in some sectors than in others. Um, you know, joint ventures are attractive for a variety of reasons, especially when projects require large investments beyond a company's ability to fund on their own. Um, they also are, are popular when um, you require the development of technology that's beyond a traditional area of expertise for a company. So, for example, JVs have been sort of the norm in the oil and gas sector for some time now because companies want to cooperate on large infrastructure projects. Another example, and a more recent one, would be that we see lots of JVs in the financial sector with so-called fintech companies teaming up with with traditional financial institutions to try to provide new types of services and products to customers through online and mobile technologies. 
And then globally, I think one that's pretty common as well is in the automotive sector. We see lots of joint ventures, especially in the areas most recently of autonomous driving and other types of electronic technological solutions. And so it does vary from sector to sector. Now, Olaf, if I can bring you in, we hear a lot about this great need in today's world for collaboration. Do you think that spurred an increase in joint ventures? Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- this is the case, what we see. Um, and, and John already touched on, on some aspects of why this is the case. Let me give some background. Um, in areas where you have what we call today disruptive changes, um, there's a strong ambition to build joint ventures of grown and large worldwide companies with um, smaller companies that bring in particularly important pieces of knowledge that might, may or may not have been present in the large ones because these large conglomerates or worldwide companies, they just have the fear of being left behind, of not being quick enough in these changes, disruptive changes that we see in, in various sectors. That's one of the main reasons you see a lot of, of joint ventures joining of forces to bring in specific knowledge and not to be left behind. That goes along with um, what John already touched um, as well, the kind of blurring of sectors, where you see that um, in, in the old times, let's call it old times, sectors were pretty clear. You were building a car, so you, you were building a car. You were building a phone, you were building a phone. But today, everything just comes together. You, you have to have a connected car that has software that a car manufacturer was not used to build in the old times, but now they need. And this all goes together with mobile devices that are integrated in the cars, etc. That's only one example. So this blurring of sectors is another strong, strong reason um, to see more and more joint ventures. And maybe just, just to close on, on this questions, um, what we also see a lot is, is kind of the, the unicorns, like startups that were real success. They are looking out in the market for other startups that they can participate in and bring them up with, with the experience they had coming from the startup to the unicorn level and also participating then in the success of the startup. So just to give some examples, these three are probably things we see most in in the current market climate. So Olaf, on that note, I mean, do you think this disruptive landscape is really spurring on companies to do more joint ventures because they do need that technology, as you say, and these are disruptive times where they might need a technology or something that they don't have in-house and joint ventures are the best way to do that? Well, it's certainly a way to... um, to be making sure that uh, hopefully you also also get the important knowledge in house or get your hands on it. So because you might be able to join uh, to build joint ventures with quite a lot of these startups that that all bring interesting ideas. No one knows which of these ideas will be market leading in um, the next five years in the next ten years. But if if you're not connected in any way to the successful ideas then you just might have missed out. So I think for this reason, yes, you see more more joint ventures in this area. Now, John, we know the pandemic, it's forced many companies into financial difficulties. They're having to make some tough decisions. What has that meant for joint ventures? The pandemic's put a strain on many types of businesses and and joint ventures are no exception. Um, I think particularly ones 
where you have uh, perhaps one partner that may have the primary responsibility for providing you know, the source of funding or resources, and that partner's own business is negatively affected by the pandemic, so putting a strain on their ability to sort of meet their obligations. Um, but then some joint venture businesses themselves, they've suffered because of the pandemic, and the tensions caused by the economic downturn have put these parties into positions that they probably hadn't expected to be in. When COVID uh, first hit and everyone was going into lockdown, the predictions were that we were going to see a lot of a really high number of joint venture disputes and breakups and things like that. Um, at least in the U.S., we haven't seen as much as we thought we might. Um, we've, we have a number of clients that are in disputes uh, in the U.S. and across the globe, our firm does, that are in disputes with their JV partners now, um, and including disputes over how to, how to end or break up the joint venture. But I think many of our clients uh, were able to work, work through those problems. And, and in, in those instances where they were able to work through them, it was kind of interesting. Um, a lot of times, you know, JVs break up because of um, an imbalance between the parties in terms of one party's getting more out of the, the, the joint venture than the other is. Um, and, and a lot of the disputes that we saw and a lot of problems that we saw with the JVs, the, both sides were suffering. And so neither really had, an, a, 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 they didn't have different incentives. There was either going to be a breakup because both were interested in trying to do it, or there wasn't going to be a breakup. They were both going to try to work their way through and, 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 and do the best, best they could to get through COVID. So it's been, a, it's been sort of a learning experience for us to watch how these companies have managed. And Olaf, let's just stay on that a little bit. Let's talk about these breakups and how joint ventures could potentially avoid these breakups. What are some of the more common mistakes that you see clients making when they're entering a JV? Yeah, yeah that, that's a good one. And we are now mentally at the start of a joint venture, but what is really important to even at the start or at, in particular at, at the starting point, think about whether this might come to an end and how it can, can come to an end, to civilized end. So this is all about an economic joining of forces. Yeah? It's about two or more parties joining forces to have economic success. To start this, you really need to think about, in case it ends, what would be an appropriate exit mechanism? Having that, uh, and it, it sounds a bit um, strange maybe, but having that also helps in the ongoing joint venture because you know in case you can go on with your joint venture partner, there is a clear exit door that you can take. So the existence of this exit door already helps, helps in our experience to um, get off some steam and to, to get away some of the pressure because you know um, either you find a solution or you, or you leave. It may not be nice for, for the economic future of a joint venture, but if you have the chance to leave, that helps a lot. So in your experience then, how many joint ventures have you seen that actually have these robust exit strategies in place? I mean, is that a real failing when looking at joint ventures that don't work? Uh, I've seen robust exit strategies in two joint ventures having litigated probably something in between 10 to 20. So it's, it's rare from what I, but it's, it's just what I've seen. I, I agree with Olaf. I, I, this is an interesting issue because as a, as a litigator, um, particularly someone who is involved in a lot of transactional disputes, just business deals in general, we, we usually see that there isn't a lot of attention paid to things like indemnity, dispute resolution, 
force majeure. You know, a lot of the provisions that come into play when a JV is 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 in peril and might get terminated, those provisions a lot of times are taken right off the shelf and plugged into a contract. And there isn't a lot of thought that goes into the specific circumstances of these two parties or multiple parties entering into the joint venture agreement and how the parties might benefit from a little more thought going into them. So I... I um, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Olaf's experience. It's, it's been mine as well, is there isn't a lot of thought put into this at, at the outset. And, and again, it's like we said earlier, though. I think the reason is that people are excited and there's a psychology to this. They don't want to spend too much time on the negative because I think there's a, a psychological element to this that they don't want to focus on bad things. They're, everyone's focused on the good things. You know, it's a tough thing for, for parties to navigate at, at the outset. And I think that's where the good corporate lawyers can, can make a big difference. When, when you think about how a joint venture is formed and you think about that maybe the joint venture contracts have been uh, negotiated uh, for, for days and nights, all the important regulations about how the life cycle will look like, who will have what rights, etc. Th that is demanding. That is time consuming. People get tired. And then you really want to add negotiations to two o'clock in the morning about Uh, an exit strategy, it, it comes on top of what John said. Um, that is also psychological reason why, why it just doesn't happen very often. And so is that where you can step in at the formation of a joint venture? You can come in and put that exit strategy in place so that when and if it doesn't work, they're in a good place to start those exit negotiations. In the United States, and Olaf can speak to this from the, from the uh, international side, but in the U.S., one of the big pushes that we've been engaged in the litigation practice for the past few years is to is to work with our corporate partners more often and to and to get involved in um, the transactional side of these joint ventures and other types of uh, business combinations to be able to help our corporate partners focus on some of these issues and take our experience from the disputes that we've seen to try to build into the agreements uh, you know better protections for our clients and um, it's been very interesting to, 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 to see that evolution because as we've been doing it, there's sort of this momentum now and we seem to be getting involved more, more frequently and more often in, in the negotiation process just on, on these types of issues that are getting down to brass tax issues. Uh, but for us, they're what we're going to live with after, after the transaction goes forward. And um, it's, it's very important. It's been very helpful for our practice. Olaf, do you have anything to add to that? I, I fully agree with, with John. You can visualize that as, as a knowledge cycle if you want. We have learned so much from our, our corporate partners through the litigation when, when we include them and, and get got explained all, all the background of, of why they did that and, and how it happened. But that, then we go on and we litigate about two or three clauses for years and years. You turn around every word of this clause We go so deep as no um, M&A or joint venture contract can go because they have to close and sign the deal within weeks. And we litigate about one or two clauses for years. And to feed back this, uh, this knowledge as a cycle, to feed that back into the corporate side, that is what we're doing at Hogan Levels. And that is where we get uh, included from our corporate partners um, regularly. When they come to, to, to clauses where they think, well, that, that, that sounds fishy or that, that sounds complicated, that, that might trigger litigation or arbitration, that's where they include us. 
And, and that's what we can bring as a real value to, to the table. Now, we've spoken about breaking up and we've spoken about these joint ventures not working. I'd love to know about joint ventures that actually do work. Olaf, from your experience, what do you think is the key to a successful joint venture? From all the joint ventures we have seen in our group breaking up, and it's been a lot over, over the years and, and over the regions of the world, what, what we've seen is really important is one factor, like what, what we call a cultural fit. That doesn't mean you need to be from the same region, having the same background, but you need to have a similar set of values. And it may be, just giving an example, being uh, two parties that don't really like being in, under pressure and trying to solve everything that comes up as quickly and as friendly as possible. It may be two parties that really like to be in dispute and really like the tension and can work with it. So it's not the matter of, of a specific set, but what's important, it needs to be a, a fit, a cultural fit. And, and that, that is really important to go through the bad times, not only the good times, but also the bad times. And that happens in a joint venture, just in a re, like in a relationship. You do have bad times and then you need this cultural fit. And so my final question is to both of you. For those companies that are just thinking about dipping their toes into forming a JV, what's your best bit of advice on how companies can effectively avoid those blind spots? John, can I start with you? Sure. I think I would pick up on some of the topics or themes that, that Olaf has already mentioned, um, and I'd frame it in this, this way. I would Two points. First is plan for the entire life cycle of the joint venture. So, you know, the funding, the governance and the decision-making, the day-to-day operations, dispute resolution, and as Olaf mentioned, yes, dissolution too. Um, you know, the reality is that, you know, too many joint ventures start out with a great deal of excitement. There's a cultural fit. There's a great idea, there's synergies, and that can overshadow the need to just plan, right? To just plan for the day-to-day operations and to plan for the difficult times. So, you know, cultural fit is, is critically important, but it can't guarantee longevity. Market forces sometimes turn against you. So, you know, you have to be honest with yourself. These things don't always last forever. Uh, you know, you go into this hoping for the best, but you have to plan for the worst. And I think that type of forward-looking perspective is what will um, give a joint venture the best chance of, of being successful in its operation and also, you know, ending in a good way. And Olaf, what about you? Yeah, I've only maybe one point to add to what John said. I fully agree with, with everything John said. That That's the main, main point. Uh, one, one in addition is um, listen to your feeling when you form the joint venture. Because um, cultural fit that, that we mentioned already, um, it's so important, but you, you, everyone is so excited when forming a joint venture. So um, step back for a second and listen to your gut feeling. Is there anything that, that gives you a strange feeling? Don't brush over it. Think about it because that might be um, uh, reasons to, to reconsider some things, the joint venture in general, which would be a large uh, decision, but also various uh, regulations for the life cycle of the joint venture, as, as John said. So listen to this feeling at the very beginning and don't brush over it with all the excitement of, of forming something that is for the future. Maybe this future is very short and you have to be prepared for that. Thanks to both of you for joining me today and thank you for listening to part one of our series. 
In part two of this podcast, we'll be discussing what steps you should take if your joint venture fails. We'll delve a bit deeper into how to terminate a JV and the potential consequences. But for now, if you want any more information on what's been discussed, please get in touch with today's speakers, Olaf Gardner and John Talata. Or visit our new corporate and securities litigation website on hoganlevels.com. As a leading global legal advisor for corporate disputes, Hogan Levels has extensive experience in all types of corporate and securities litigation. Thanks for listening.